Hello, you sentient balls of stardust. Welcome to Struggle Care, the podcast about self-care by a host that hates the term self-care. Today, I am with Dr. Lindsay Cooley. Say hello. Hey, guys. Happy to be here. And so I wanted you to come on today because I saw your TikTok about stress. Yes. And I love the topic of stress, but I don't even know enough to make good content on it because I make so much content about like, okay, here's how we can sort of care for ourselves when we have functional barriers. And a lot of people hear that and they see like the list of diagnoses, like, oh, if you have ADHD, if you have autism, if you have a mental illness, if you have a chronic illness or a disability, like yada, 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 yada. And I think there's so many people out there that relate to my content about like life being hard, but they're oh, like, yeah. but I don't, but I don't have a diagnosis. And so that's why I was so excited to talk about stress today, because I feel like stress can take any able-bodied, able-minded person and just like put them on our level. 100%. 100%. And I think that's also part of the reason why, because like you said, a lot of people relate to your content and you talk openly about your diagnosis and everything. And they're like, well, I relate to this. And then it causes this kind of explosion that we see very commonly on TikTok of everybody thinking they have a diagnosis. And that's not how it works. There's just a lot of experiences out there that are just universal and are just all, you know, we all experience it. And I think now that we have technology that connects us a bit more, people are starting to realize that. But unfortunately, they're realizing it in a way that's a little bit not great for, you know, people with diagnosis in the field of psychology. And I think there's a lot about having a diagnosis that can be so validating. And I feel like that's really what people are looking for. Like people that relate to, let's say they relate to ADHD content, but they don't meet all the criteria. And it doesn't mean that you're not struggling. And it doesn't mean that you're not struggling with executive functioning because stress affects your executive functioning. 100%. But I really relate to it. I was, I've been seeing doctors for a couple of months now about just like some chronic fatigue that I've been experiencing. Started when I had my second daughter over two years ago, but now it's been two and a half years. And so it's like, it's really hard to pinpoint like, okay, like when did the like normal postpartum hormones and lack of sleep or whatever. And then like, when did this like weird other thing take over? And is it psychological? Is it just stress? Is it you know, metabolic? Is there something else? And I find myself like the more that I talk to my doctors about it, like part of me is like, I almost wish they would just give me a diagnosis. Like I wish they would be like, wow, Casey, you have chronic fatigue syndrome. Even though like chronic fatigue syndrome doesn't say what's wrong with you. It's just like naming a constellation of symptoms. So it's not like that would give me any answers. It's just that when I struggle to get through my day, without wanting to go to bed, when I struggle to do my normal day-to-day tasks because I'm so tired, when I struggle to have the motivation to do something and I trace it back to I'm just freaking tired. It's like I find, I feel like if somebody gave me a diagnosis, it would be easier to be kind to myself or like easier to make other people be understanding. Yeah. But the truth is, is like we deserve to be kind to ourselves even if we don't have a diagnosis. Like the symptoms are there even if they're not being named. Very true. And I think the one big thing you just hit on is it would help other people be kind because so many people are like, well, if you don't have any, if the doctors don't think anything's wrong with you, then nothing's wrong with you. And they're not willing to give that sympathy. For instance, I myself have a diagnosis of fibromyalgia, which zaps my energy. I'm in pain a lot. And I started being kinder to myself, like you said, once the doctors told me that, because I was constantly on myself of, trying to push through my day, which caused stress, which made the pain worse. And in just this never ending cycle. And now I can at least be like, oh, today's not a day for me to be able to push through and being kinder. And I know it's helped my friends and family. They were always like kind. My mother also has it, but it just helps a little bit for them to be like, oh, that's why Cooley's not, you know, able to go out tonight instead of it just sounding like a, oh, I don't feel good excuse, you know? Totally. Yeah. I remember like being on vacation and family being like, do you want to go on a walk? And me thinking like, God, I just, I feel like there's molasses in my blood. All I want to do is sit here. And for someone who's like big champion message is like laziness does not exist. For some reason, I've had a hard time applying 
like legitimacy to the fact that like I have such low energy for however long it's been. Like this isn't a normal amount of energy. Like I know it's not. I know people should be able to energize themselves to go on a walk at 1 p.m. And I think it just says a lot. I mean, certainly there are things that you need a diagnosis in order to access. But I think a lot of times the things we're wanting out of a diagnosis, we don't actually need a diagnosis for. Like like you said, like your pain, your fatigue, your frustration, your confusion, like all of it can be legitimate, even if there's no diagnosis. So that kind of brings me to stress. So here's my first question. Usually I have a bunch of questions about a topic because I want it to like lead into something I know about it. I do not know almost anything about stress. So I'm going to ask, what is stress? So that is, to be honest, the million dollar question. (laughs) Because there's, so I was looking it up because I remember, you know, I know stress and I talk about it, especially I work with teens. And so their stress, kids in school, man, their stress is out of this world. And I think a lot of adults don't validate that kind of like we were just saying with our diagnoses or feeling like, you know, we feel like crap. It's so hard to walk in someone else's shoes. And so I know about stress. And so I started looking up because I was like, well, what theories are we looking at? And there are more stress theories than I remember from school. (laughs) But the one that we usually see is called the general adaptation syndrome model of stress. And what that kind of looks at is that stress is a defense mechanism and then it follows certain stages. So if you look, people can look this up, but there's actually like a cool little chart that's like an, almost like a bell curve, except the uh, left side of the bell curve starts in the middle and there's three stages of stress. And so it's alarm, something's wrong. The resistance of pushing back to it, which is really that peak stress that we feel and then exhaustion, which is like that collapse or the release. And just like a hump and it goes down. But what happens is when we have prolonged stress, we stay in that resistance area for far too long. And when that happens, that's when we see things like what a lot of people will call um, diseases of adaptation. We adapt to the stress and our body and our behaviors not necessarily make it work for us, but they adapt to it. And too much stress can even, what a lot of these articles start talking about is too much stress can lead to death, right? Heart attacks and cardiovascular issues occur. And what we really want to aim for is learning how to react to that alarm and get out of that resistance a bit more quickly so that our exhaustion doesn't absolutely plummet. So the resistance stage, when you were talking about that, I sort of envisioned that feeling of like when you're treading water and you're trying so hard just to like keep your mouth and nose over the water. And so what is it that we're resisting in that space? So when we hit that resistance space, we're actually, that's what many people would know as the fight or flight response. So we're stuck in that survive. It's a survival response. Uh, Like you said, treading above water. If I don't keep fighting for my life to keep my head above here, I'm going to sink. And that's exactly what's happening when we're in our different stages of stress. And that's why it can lead to issues because when we're, I mean, you get tired and then you crash. And when we're tired, no matter if you have a diagnosis or not, when we're tired, our mental health suffers. We don't have the resilience to push back against it. Do you think our culture normalizes like too much stress? Oh, yeah you know, side hustles and constantly working. I mean, right now we have this concept going around of the quiet quitting. It's just like doing your job. Right? Like, oh, you're not pushing yourself. yourself. And somehow that's bad that you're not willing to, you know, put in that extra hustle for God knows whatever reason, because, you know, you want to, you should be getting paid more adequately or it's just too much work. You're doing the job of five people, whatever it is. We're literally looking down on people who are doing their jobs because we, collective we, I don't believe it, but you know, we think that they should be doing more. Or if you're not constantly out there being social, we get the stress from that kind of pressure or activities and, you know, oh, you don't have any hobbies besides sitting at home playing video games type of thing. We're shamed for it. It, A lot of shame. And we don't really put a lot of validity to 
being stressed. And, and in some ways, it's like a badge of honor, right? Like when I used to wait tables, it was like sort of this badge of honor of like, I didn't sleep last night or I've worked 19 doubles in a row. Or even with kids, like you said, like kids, they get overloaded with homework or they're dealing with social things. And we just kind of act like, hey, suck it up. Don't worry about it. When I was talking to sort of some psychiatrists and doctors about the fatigue that I was feeling, a lot of them would say, you know, when I hear you talk about your experience during the pandemic, like having a baby, immediately being locked down, being alone and isolated, getting postpartum depression, like the sleeplessness, the constantly feeling like you have to be on for your young children. They're like, I mean, it might just be that. And so I don't mean just as in like, that's a small thing, but like it can take your body so long to recover from burnout. And you want it, which is when I guess you in that stress period too long. Yeah. So what's actually super interesting, and you just gave me like a perfect segue, even though we said we weren't like, we're not scripting this out. So I love this. An article was just released two weeks ago in the LA Times by a psychologist, and it's called Kids Are Suffering from Toxic Stress. Here's some advice on how we can help them heal. And her main point is that these kids for the last two and a half years have been under a constant state of stress that their little bodies and brains are just not capable of or capable of handling appropriately, whatever that might mean, and even attributing it to the adverse childhood experiences scores and how maybe that's going to have to be reframed and redone because of this prolonged stress that we're all under. And she talks about adults too. The doctor's name is Dr. Pemberton, and she is the professor of educational psychology and counseling marriage and family therapy program at Cal State Northbridge. That is a mouthful, but I want to make sure to give her the credit she deserves. But she mentions being stuck in the house with family. And how many kids do you have? Two. And they were a newborn and like 21 months old when the pandemic started. Yeah. So that's like, I don't care how big your house is with those ages. It's not big enough to... And she talks about that, especially with kids from maybe lower income where there wasn't as much space in the house. But when everybody is out, it's fine. But when everybody's stuck there, it's absolutely horrible. And so we're all seeing this across and the And you board. mentioned the um, adverse childhood sort of scale. And I know there's also like the, is it the Holmes and Ray scale or Ray and Holmes? I never know what the... Uh, I think it's Ray and Holmes. Ray and Holmes. I would encourage anyone who has never looked at those to go. It's like this list of stressful events. And there's like a point system for each stressful event. And you like tally it up and you get the sort of little measurement at the end. And when I've done that with clients, they're genuinely shocked yeah. at the stress that they're under. And we don't give enough credence to like how that affects our executive functioning, how that affects our relationships, how that affects our energy and, and all of these things. Yeah, I actually, so I used the ACEs scale during my dissertation. I was talking about uh, the wounded healer and how all of us psychology students had something going on. So that's why we went into the field. And it was really interesting because there was a dichotomous question on there of, do you believe you experienced trauma as a child? And then they also had the ACEs study. And people were answering no to the trauma question and then getting mid to high scores on the ACEs study. And the ACEs study is adverse childhood experiences. Yes, sorry. Um, That's all right. I know, but I don't think everyone knows. <laughs> I know. I have to remember that sometimes when I'm talking to people. And so I think that goes back to this idea of how we've normalized stress is that there's so much stuff that occurs that it's normalized until and until you step outside of that and go, oh, what do you mean? That's not what everybody feels or that's not how everybody you know feels when everyone doesn't experience burnout. What do you mean? And it's just this idea that, no, it's okay. And I think as a society, we are for us to be healthy physically and mentally, we have to step away from this idea that we have to be on the constant hustle. We have to be constantly working. Okay, I have a thought for this, but let's pause for a break and then I'll come back. Okay, sounds good. I'm someone who happens to believe that the chore of feeding myself is one of the most annoying care tasks. And that's why I really like Factor. And when I say I really like Factor, I mean they shipped me some food and told me to eat it and make an ad. 
And I not only did that, but then I went back and spent my own money and bought more of them. And I can't wait till the box gets here. That's because Factor really does make eating easier. And this was on the heels of a doctor's appointment where I got very strict instructions to give my body better nutrients. So wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. And they actually do taste good. You'll get over 35 different options a week to choose from. And even I, a very picky eater, always can find something that I like. I love that they are two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. They all take two minutes in the microwave. Snacks, smoothies, breakfast, dinner. You can discover a wide variety of easy options. Sign up and save now. We've done the math. Factor is actually less expensive than takeout, and every meal is a dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. My own dietitian was stoked when I told her that I had made this decision. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. So head over to factormeals.com struggle50 and use code struggle50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while the subscription is active. That's code struggle50 at factormeals.com struggle50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while the subscription is active. Even my husband says this is the best he's ever tried. And we've tried a lot of these. Is 2024 bringing exciting or unexpected changes to your life? Here's a secret weapon to help you face those challenges with more confidence a great term life insurance policy. I can't believe that I am 37 years old and I am excited about life insurance, but life comes at you fast. I feel like yesterday I was 25 and I wasn't thinking about stuff like this. But when my husband and I got married and we started having kids, it was one of the first conversations that he brought up. Really, Fabric by Gerber Life makes it simple to protect your family's financial future so you can focus on what's ahead, knowing your family's protected if something else unexpected happens. And I feel like I sleep better at night knowing that if something were to happen to he or I, that the other one could take care of our family. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get high quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. It's all online and on your schedule. No appointments, scheduling, or piles of paperwork. Just apply when it's convenient for you. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. So don't be somebody who finds when tragedy strikes, you're wishing that you would have made this choice. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at Meet fabric.com slash struggle. That's meetfabric.com slash struggle. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash struggle. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Okay. We're back with Dr. Lindsay Cooley. We're talking about stress. And I want to kind of circle back to something you said at the beginning where you were saying like, okay, everybody is sort of experiencing difficulties in their life. And then they're listening to people talk about their diagnoses and everyone's starting to think, well, maybe I have a diagnosis. Maybe I have a diagnosis. And I'm someone who tends to think that like self-diagnosis is totally valid. There are some real accessibility issues to mental health. But one thing that I think is interesting about what we're talking about is that like, I think again, self-diagnosis is valid. And I think this like over desire to get a diagnosis not when we're talking about access, because obviously some people need a diagnosis for access, but it almost works against us because we have so normalized that stress isn't a big deal, that like living in chronic stress isn't a big deal. And so you want that one thing that kind of gives you validity. And I think maybe what I'm hearing you say is like the better a response Instead of going, I need this diagnosis to validate is to go, whoa, let's look at this whole system. Like the whole system we are living under is like not good for mental health. Like I'm having a normal reaction to a really dysfunctional societal system because it's, you know, there are people out there working three jobs because that's literally how they're putting food in their mouths. Right. And like if my kids in a school and I think there's a little too much stress there, but I don't necessarily have a lot of other options on where she needs to go. And I think that that like in order for us to have almost like a collective pushback on changing things systematically, I think we need to legitimize that like we're having normal reactions to like dysfunctional systems. Right. Yeah. And I think one thing that's interesting about that is that sorry, I like had a thought and had to come back and it finally reloaded in my brain is when we look at like the different models of even diagnoses. So we have the medical model, which is kind of what the field uses. And that's, you know, it's all physiological and 
stuff like that. But then we have the social model of disability. And that's what you're talking about, is that it's not necessarily something inherently wrong with us, which is kind of what the medical model preaches is, no, it's in you, it's chemicals, it's imbalance, all this stuff. Um, But with the social model of disease, we start talking about how the environment around us is what's hurting us. The stress is what's causing our depression or anxiety, not chemical imbalances. And that has been harder to get into just because of our culture, at least here in the United States with pharmaceuticals and insurance companies. And that'd be a whole different topic for a podcast, but we are starting to slowly shift to that social model. And I think once we get a bit more people over there, we're going to be able to focus on the fact that the way society is structured is hurting us. So what would you say are some symptoms? Let's say someone's listening and they're going, I'm having a really difficult time in life. What would you say are some of the symptoms of being in that sort of stress cycle, or at least being in that stress cycle too long, where it's starting to cause physical, mental, emotional issues? Like what kind of issues do you see both in children and adults? Yeah. So physically what we'll see, and it's because when we are under stress, we release a hormone called cortisol, which is known as the stress hormone. And that activates a ton of stuff in our body. So when you're stressed or a term we use a lot in the workplace is burnout, you're burning out. And what we're going to see with that is sometimes there's weight gain because with that cortisol and that fight or flight response, it's thinking, oh, I'm in danger. So I need to store everything I'm taking in just in case. We'll see muscle weakness. Maybe you start feeling really tired. You feel weak than you are used to. Sometimes we will see even things like you can see excessive hair growth or hair loss from stress. So people are like, no, my I'm pulling my hair out isn't necessarily just a euphemism. And it's interesting that these physical things happen. Now, emotionally, we're going to feel maybe like we have less patience, less drive. I know, for instance, I am in a Facebook group called The Burnt Out Therapist. And it's therapists talking about how this stuff impacts us and how we're there for our clients. And I've actually, I posted a video quite a while ago about therapist burnout, just basically we're human too type of thing. But we see that and just that stress, our response is going to be to try to make our body slow down. You're going to want to stay in bed. You're not going to want to get up. We're going to maybe have some executive functioning issues where we're starting to be more forgetful or long tasks wear us out. And that's when we start seeing things like, oh, maybe I do have ADHD because I'm distracted all the time, or maybe this is depression because I'm tired and I don't have enjoyment in what I used to do. And it's not necessarily that. It's just the fact that the world is pushing us far too hard that our brains start defaulting into these things we call disorders. When in reality, is it really a disorder if it's a natural response to the human condition? And You know, I feel like a lot of times when we think about stress, we think about like physical and mental exertion. So we think about having to work long hours. We think about maybe worrying over like not having enough money. We think about maybe family dynamics and conflict. But what would you say about the stress of just like the state of the world? Like, I feel like I have like unprecedented access to like the tragedies happening in the world. That's like a whole different level, I think, that we really have not seen because that's on a global scale at this point. There's so much going on and they're starting to study. I believe they're starting to study what that's doing to us. But there's this kind of idea that's been floating around that because we are all under this constant state of stress, which there's different types of stress and how that impacts us. And this prolonged stress is actually what we would see in somebody who's starting to develop like PTSD. So there's acute stress, which is like that quick stuff, quick sudden danger with a short period of time. So say you almost get hit by a car and that jump of adrenaline you have is acute stress. We have chronic stress, which is long-term stress, which I guess is more kind of what we're going through with the feelings of anxiety and frustration that are just consistent. And that's usually what we'll see typically with chronic illness and is that kind of stress. But then we have traumatic stress, which is what PTSD is. And that's 
a lot of this is life-threatening events that induce fear and or helplessness or seeing other, PTSD can be caused by seeing other people experience these bad events. And that's, I think, what's happening here. We are seeing so many people experience this stuff. It's wild to me that the DSM, which is the diagnostic manual for these diseases, it is wild to me that in the criteria for PTSD, it specifically excludes seeing something traumatic through media. It does. Unless you work for media. So like a news anchor can get a PTSD diagnosis for because they were the one reporting about 9-11. But a person at home... I'm grabbing mine. You're getting your notes out. The person at home can't get a PTSD diagnosis for saying, I was 12 years old and I watched video footage of people jumping to their death over and over and over. And that to me is like one of the major ways where psychiatry has not caught up to the social media age. Mm -hmm. And I particularly think about... You know, when the murder of George Floyd happened and anyone in my proximity that was a black woman, a black man, just a person in the black community would talk about the stress that they experienced seeing that video over and over and over and over. And it seems like such an oversight that according to the DSM, you can't get a PTSD diagnosis for that. Even if you meet all the other symptoms. Nope. And I think that's also, yeah, no, it doesn't. It's a weird rule out to me that they have that. And again, that could be a topic for a whole other podcast is how the DSM is political. And it's, you know, the psychiatric association is predominantly older white men. So maybe they're not being traumatized by that. So they don't see it. But if we talk about the fact that you and I, we're in, in case anybody listening does not know what we look like, we are not black Americans. So Imagine what that is doing to the black community to see someone who looks just like them be killed on TV and then repeated over and over and over again. You won't convince me that that's not creating a generation, especially with the kids, a generation of kids who are experiencing or will have a PTSD diagnosis if we ever fix this DSMBS. I mean, I feel like they put that carve out in there when like, half of Americans had one black and white TV showing I Love Lucy on it. Like, yeah, if they saw one news brief, like, I get it. If you see one news briefing of a tragedy, that is probably not going to give you PTSD. But like, that's not a reality anymore. Like, we have information, graphic visual information streaming into our skull sockets 24-7. And I think especially when you talked about the like there's this stress of, you know, when I watch the footage of protests, when I watch the footage of, you know, things like that with that stress of like, oh, man, the world is scary. But even that is nothing compared to watching violent footage that drives home that you personally are not safe. Not just like the world is scary, you know, climate change, but like you personally might befall some sort of violence when you walk out your door right now. It's, and I remember the first time I felt that was as a lesbian when the Pulse shooting happened. And I was in grad school at the time and my, um, it was actually my marriage and family class, but the professor was like, forget the lesson for today, we're processing, which was actually fantastic. We actually, another professor did it after Trump got elected. We just sat and processed. But with that Pulse shooting is I was suddenly like, wow. I'm not safe. And there had always been little moments. I grew up and I'm from Michigan where there's a lot of small right-leaning towns who don't really like me. But all of a sudden I was like, wow, that was supposed to be a safe place. And in that moment, I remember talking to one of my black classmates and I was like, I always felt for you, but is this what it's like every time you see that? And she was like, yeah. She goes, this is every time there's a report, this is what we feel. And it took the empathy I already had and the anger I already had to like the next level. Because, and there's no way that that didn't impact, you know, the queer community because we're still, I mean, the pride parades and everything like on edge, like you're always watching the same way 
we see, you know, that you would expect the kids, like, let's say over in the Middle East that see bombings all the time. You can't tell me that the type of fear that's being projected to them isn't also the type of fear that's being projected on a different kind of scale to our youth. When something's constantly happening with our school shootings, I posted a video about that. When the little girl said when it happens instead of if it happens, these kids and I mean, the teachers, everything and parents, too. I'm sure you're terrified. And it's yeah, I am terrified. And I have two kids in school right now. They're both too young for public school, but one of their schools has a gate and one of them doesn't. And it's like a genuine fear of mine. What if somebody just walks in the door? What if somebody just, you know, does this or that? And I think the other thing that's really interesting to me is I have really strong feelings about active shooter drills. I think that active shooter drills are not providing enough safety to outweigh how traumatic they are. Like it's scary and I don't ever want to downplay the scariness of it. We had a it was a hoax, but it was felt very real for the students who had to put their hands up when the cops ran in with guns right down the street from me. But statistically speaking, our ch most, you know, like my children are probably not going to be in a school shooting. However, I cannot imagine how traumatic it is to reenact one over and over and over, starting at four years old. And talk about that happening. And the other part of me that is like blowing my mind is like the majority of school shooters are students from that school who have been in these stupid drills. They know exactly where what's happening and where everyone's hiding. And like, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And it's out. The kids I see talk about this. I had one come in last week and they did an active shooter drill and they weren't expecting it. But the police that were there actually started pounding on the doors. Like to make sure that, you know, the kid doesn't have the instinct to open it or whatever. And he, this kid is middle school and he was like, I didn't think I'd be scared, but all of a sudden I was scared. And there's, they don't have, kids are brilliant, don't get me wrong. They're smarter than we will ever give them credit for, but they don't have the brain mechanisms to fully comprehend this. There's not that break between, I mean, it scares the adults. I've worked in schools and we had two threats that went, put us on soft lockdowns and then it's over but we also did the drills. And there's a different logic that adults have where we're able to go, okay, it's a drill. We'll move on and then we'll go on to whatever. The kids' bodies are reacting to the stress. Their cortisol levels are activating and then they don't have the logic ability to bring themselves back down. Okay. That reminds me of something um, that I want to tell you about after we take a little break. Okay. So we're going to break and come back. Hey there. I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of TILT is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the TILT Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. Mm. 
So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking It. Okay, so I saw this tweet one time from a child psychologist that was talking about like children and media. And she said, please be careful what you let your kids watch. Your young children do not possess the cognitive contextualization to deal with scary and sad scenes in movies. And she said, every single Disney movie, a scene where a parent dies, a scene where there's a flood, a scene where someone is scared. You as an adult aren't frightened by those because you can cognitively contextualize, oh, and then everybody turned out okay. And this is a Disney movie and I know everyone's going to be okay. But your kid can't do that. Like the memories of the stress, like the literal body memory of the stress they experience in that moment where something bad happens in that movie are not undone just because three scenes later, everyone's okay. And that really opened my mind to what you're talking about, about kids not having. And I think about like when I watch a a movie that has scary parts and I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what kind of movie this is and the visceralness I feel and how even if everyone's okay in the end, you still might go to bed thinking about it. And it really, I mean, speaking of stress, like I feel like there's a lot of things and a lot of ways that we can help our kids reduce the amount of stress that they're sort of put to. But one thing I want to get to before we wrap up is I want to talk about the stress animals. Oh, yes. Our stress animals. I love the stress animals. I used to do this for um, a group activity when I worked in a rehab and it was so fascinating to everyone. Yes. Yes. So tell me about the stress animals. So the idea of the stress animals comes from something by Lynn Lott. This woman named Lynn Lott came up with it and it's called Top Card. And the idea is it's, we call it top card because it's the card you play when you're stressed. And the way we walk through this exercise, I just love that you did it. I've never heard anyone else who does this outside of like my positive discipline classes. So I'm super excited. So what we do is we say, well, you've had a really hard day at work, at school, and a UPS driver shows up at your door and he brings you four different boxes. And these four different boxes contain things that no one really wants to deal with, but he has to drop them off. And so one of these boxes contains stress and pain. One contains criticism and ridicule. One is rejection and hassles. And the other one is feelings of meaninglessness and unimportance. And you're like, dude, take these away. I don't want them. And he goes, all right, all right, I can take one back. And so we ask the people, which box are you going to send back out of these four boxes? And the box they send back is the last thing they want to feel when they're stressed. However, that means that's the unhealthy way you handle stress. (laughs) So for instance, there's a bunch of stuff that goes into all of this. And it's, I'll recommend that people go to Lynn Lott's website, Google Lynn Lott Top Card. And she actually has a really cool like interactive drop-down menu that I absolutely love to use. I do this with kids sometimes. And then they'll like draw the animal they are. It's great. It's a great activity. Yeah. And so, for instance, my top card is criticism and ridicule. When I, my personality style is control. When I am stressed, I need stuff to go my way. Do not tell me I'm doing it wrong. I am not open to any type of corrective feedback when I am stressed. And that's something I work on. (laughs) And so it gives me an idea of how I can work through that. And for other people out there who are thinking about theirs, if yours was stress and pain, your personality style is comfort or avoidance, and you're like a turtle. If the box you gave away was rejection and hassles, your personality style is pleasing, and you're like the chameleon. And if it was meaninglessness and unimportance, your personality style is superiority, and you're like the lion. So that's what you do when you're stressed. So when it comes to the chameleon of that pleasing style, you're just trying to make sure everybody's happy because you're stressed. So you want everybody else to be okay. And probably the fact that you're a pleasing type of person only leads to more stress. So I'm going to ask Casey, what animal are you? 
What was the fourth one? It was like turtle, lion, chameleon, and... Eagle. So that's the control one, which is what I am. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to remember. I think it was lion. So when we did it, we also had them on like an XY axis. Oh, love that. Where you had one of the axes was like active and passive. Oh, okay. And so the turtle was the turtle and the chameleon are passive. Mm -hmm. And the lion and the eagle are active. Okay, yeah. I can see that. And then the other axis, because here's why. We talked about it as conflict management styles. And that's how we talked about stress. Okay, the two axes were like your concern about goals and your concern about relationships. Oh, I love that. Yes. So when you come under stress, like a stressful situation, and if what you're thinking about is like you become sort of active or passive, but it's like I'm worried about the relationship. And so if I'm worried about the relationship and I react by sort of trying to make everything sort of harmonizing it, or if I get really over the top about goals, like you were talking about like getting controlling, where I try to control everything. So that's what it was. It was like, whether you got like active and passive, and then whether you were more concerned with goals or relationships, right? Like, when I experience stress, I become, it kind of depends. Like if I'm experiencing like work stress, I get into like, we must do this goal. We must get this goal and screw everybody else. Yeah. And I like, I lose all social skills and like appropriateness, but then I do the opposite at home. Like if there's a, an issue and we're all under stress, I become like the chameleon where I'm like overly functioning about like, is everyone okay? Are we okay? Are you okay? And my poor husband is like, yes. Oh my gosh, we're just stressed. (laughs) We're okay. It's good. Um, Yes. And it was interesting to talk about like, you know, what that shows up like, because like you said, they do correlate to like the thing that I want to avoid the most. Like, please don't make me feel this right now when everything else is going badly. Yes. Okay. Tell me the boxes again. So it's um, stress and pain, criticism and ridicule, rejection and hassles, and meaninglessness and unimportance. Oh, God. It's really hard to choose one. I think it's interesting. The one feedback I would have to Lynn Lott if I ever talked to her, not really. I have talked to her before at a conference, but I think the idea of we're talking about stress and then one of the things is stress and pain, I think gets a little confusing for people. It's like when you use the word in the definition. The meaningless one would probably be like the short, like number two would be the belittling one, but probably the meaningless one. And so what we talk about when we use this in the positive, because we use this with parents is the point usually. I mean, it works great on all levels. I've used it in multiple places, but we talk about the second box you would get away with or be done with is actually your method of operation when you're not stressed and the more positive attributes of that. So my second one, it seems like we're kind of flipped. My second one is the lion, the meaninglessness. But that means we have more gifts like it still gets a lot done and it's about like making people laugh and, you know, you just do things. That's my second one. Whereas like for you, if you're the criticism and ridicule, being a good leader, good crisis manager, you can take control. You're persistent. And I mean, all the stuff you do that what I know about you, that fits you. You are there till the end. And that's why that's your second card. I'm great in a crisis. Yeah. I will slowly wither to death in the face of meaninglessness, but I am great in a crisis. That's really fascinating. So I feel like it would be helpful for me to know my own profile and the profiles of the people around me so that I kind of know what's going on when stress is happening. Here's what I would love to chat for a second as we land the plane is that so someone who's listening and they're like, Oh my gosh, it is. It's like stress in my life. Like now what? Like, especially people that can't necessarily, I mean, obviously if you can move out of a stressful situation or find a way to do like, we know that answer, right? Like quit the stressful job, budget. But what about people that it's like, okay, like you got to go to school or like, Hey, this is my job. There are other jobs out there. Like what things can they be doing to be, I don't even want to say managing stress, but maybe just learning how they can care for themselves in the midst of that stress. Yeah. And it can be hard because when we're stressed, we often feel like we don't have time. How can, how can I take care of myself if 
I'm already super strapped thin, you know, or stretched thin. But there are ways. And one of the, and I was looking through all like my documents and stuff about stress and looking up the articles I remember getting in when we talked about this stuff. We really talk about how there's like three ways, three to four ways of dealing with stress. And there's cognitive levels, physical level, environmental level. And then there's like an other, but so cognitively, of course, because I'm on a psychology website and these are psychology papers, the number one option is therapy, (laughs) but obviously not accessible to everybody. If you're stressed about time and money, that may not be the answer, (laughs) right? Go deal with your insurance issues and then sit for 50 minutes and, you know, use your lunch break for that. But stuff like they offer like meditation, mindfulness, and the issue that really comes into, because the other stuff is like taking, making, planning stuff out, which doesn't work great for those of us with ADHD, taking time to read, time management. And it's almost like, I feel like a lot of times when we talk about this stuff, it was written by people who don't know what stress is. But the issue here is you have to take time out for yourself. There's no way to beat stress unless you can take time out for yourself. And it's a long process. Like you're not going to make long weekend your way out of burnout. Right. In fact, oftentimes you'll see that that's worse because then you're like, what did I miss? Environmentally, we talk about you can put in music. Maybe there's calming music that you like while you do another activity. Um, nature, pets. I mean, yeah. it feels like it really does come down to like the actual answer is like the stressful environment that you're in. Like finding some way to modify it, to change it, or at least plan a way out of it, even if that plan takes you several years, right? Like baby steps, baby steps and recognizing some of us, it's a forever thing. Some of it's a time constraint thing. You know, like if you're a parent, they're not going to be little forever and, and all these kind of things. But I think that there's something that can feel both defeating and sort of validating about that, where it's like, you're not failing, This isn't a situation where, like, if you did better coping skills, you wouldn't be so stressed. Like, and I think that's where a lot of the shame comes from is because, like, well, why exercise works for me? Why haven't you tried it? It's like, with like me and you, no, we're we're tired. Exercise would not help us. I mean, I go on walks and I know it does help on some level, but it wouldn't make my stress go away. But what I like to tell people, and as you're saying, you know, as long as you're trying, one thing I, I say this to most of my patients is that the only thing that matters about today is that you tried your best. And that causes anxiety because when we think about trying our best, it's usually pushing ourselves to the limit. And that's not what I mean. I mean, whatever you could handle that day. If the only thing you could do today was take a shower, bravo, look at you, you rocked it. If that was what you gave, that's what you gave. If your best day was that you got your butt up, went to class, aced an exam, came home, made like if you were above and beyond, fantastic. But that doesn't mean when the next day you feel like shit, you're a bad person. As long as you are trying your best for whatever best means for you on that specific day in that moment. And I wonder what it would look like. I know for me, I have a hard time sort of identifying, even when you say like what you can handle. I'm like, could I have handled more? Like I have this weird thing in my head where like, if I could physically get out of bed, I could have done more, right? Like I did this when I was like around sickness for a long time. Like if I could physically get out of bed, I should go to work. Like nobody ever really gave me like a realistic, like what manageable is supposed to feel like. And I think a lot of us think that manageable is still this like overextending thing that they're doing. And like, I would almost rather a client purposefully underestimate their energy for the day than overestimate it, right? Like sometimes I feel like hitting manageable is almost like too much pressure of a goal as opposed to like, I want you to like undersell yourself every day. Take the nap, be a little late, leave the dishes there one day. Like, (laughs) Well, yeah. And the way I put it with some of my kids who are like struggle in school And then they'll get an assignment and they're like, it's too hard. I'm not even going to try it. That zero in the grade book, throw your name on it and answer three questions. Because an F that's 50% is a hell of a lot better than an F that's a 0%. And that's the same thing here. If what you All points are positive. Yep. So undersell it. Do the bare minimum, but at least get some, a few points in there. Yeah. 
I find that when I undersell myself, I get more done. Mm-hmm. Because then I'm surprised. I'm like, look at me go. Oh, wow. I really did I that did today. That. Yep. Oh, I love that. Well, this has been a great conversation. Where can people find you if they want to follow you? So I am on TikTok at Dr. Cool Beans with a Z underscore PsyD, P-S-Y-D. And from there, there's a link tree with all my contact information and everything like that. But TikTok is pretty much my home base for what I like to call edutainment. My- I love your username. <laughs> it's very like nostalgic of my childhood. I don't know why. I don't know who said cool beans all the time in my childhood, but it's like very much <laughs> takes me back. Yeah, my wife gave me the nickname in college and I was like, that's a fantastic tag for every social media I now have from here on out. <laughs> and is your logo two beans inside of a head? It is. <laughs> it's like a brain. Like a brain. Um, yeah, I thought the brain was overdone. I was like, beans. Beans. That's amazing. Um, okay. Well, this was awesome. And I really appreciate it. I hope everyone goes and follows you because I really enjoy your content and I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me. I respect you and everything you do. So this is a great honor. Thank you. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy The Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of The Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside The Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out The Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy.